In Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus, we encounter the reality that the gospel story has the power to transform every single aspect of our story. And that's exactly what we were made for. This is Ephesians, and we're Mercy Village Church in Barbersville, West Virginia. And you can learn more at www.mercyvillage.church. We move today into chapter 4 of Ephesians. We talked last week about how the first three chapters are filled with indicatives, these realities about God that are revealed to us, realities about the gospel, realities about who we are by the grace of God through Jesus Christ. And so it's filled with those indicatives, those real truths expressed in the Word of God. And it breaks down very neatly that now the next three chapters will be filled with imperatives. Things that we are called to in Christ that we are called to do. Ways to act faithfully. To follow after Jesus. Now again, there are some imperatives in the first three chapters. Some things that we're called to. And there'll be some indicatives, some realities about God that we'll see in the last three chapters. But primarily, the first three are these indicatives and the last three are these imperatives. And so as we move into the first, you know, what's God through Paul's pen? What's the first thing he's going to call us to? What's in order of uh, revelation to us? What's he going to go to first? We just read it if you if you haven't picked up on it, but we can can play a little game of fill in the blank as a little clue here. You got a slide? Yeah, here we go. John 13, 35. By this, Jesus says to his disciples, will all men know that you are my disciples if you have really cool sermons? No. Thank God, right? That'd be bad. (laughs) We'd be in trouble. If you have really uh, cool worship space, We're closer to that than we are to cool sermons, but still, it wouldn't get us there. You have a really slick, you know, Sunday morning gathering. No. It's none of those things. By the way, the Sunday gatherings where things go wrong have become some of my favorites over the years. I'm being honest. I really am. It didn't used to be that way. They frustrated the, the living snot out of me. But now it's like God whispers... This is my church, not yours. This, this church doesn't belong to, uh, you know, Microsoft PowerPoint. This church belongs to me. This church doesn't belong to, you know, the HDMI cables that run across the ceiling. This church belongs to me. I've learned to love it when things don't go right. Clearly, that's not by what, what people will know that we're Jesus' followers. It's not even like necessarily great things, right? Like it's not if we knew Scripture so well. We just can speak it out just out of our mouths. That's a good thing. That's like a thing that we're called to, but that's not how Jesus finishes the sentence. If you could pray down the heavens, again, might we be people of prayer? That's not how he finishes the sentence. You know how he finishes the sentence. By this will all people know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. That's how. That's the clue. That's it. Love for one another leads to unity. Unity leads to love for one another. This is the same ballpark. Those two things are are functioning in the same place. They have to be. Unity is absolutely 
essential. We know this at face value, intellectually, but do we engage it with our lives? I'm deeply convicted by what Paul's first imperative for the church at Ephesus is. Today he's going to show us that one of the utmost priorities of the people of God must be unity, and true unity only comes from God. And true unity always gives Him glory. One of the utmost priorities for the people of God must be unity. I'm going to see that fleshed out today. Father, what we know not, please teach us. What we are not, please make us. And what we have not, please give us today. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. The first three verses lay out this call to unity. Paul's going to call the church at Ephesus and in turn us to unity. First, he talks about our calling. Verse one, therefore, I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord. He throws that in there. Not it's not a humble brag. If you know, Paul, Paul's not humble bragging. Paul has a purpose in saying that he is reminding us that he's writing this from prison because it gives credit not to Paul, but because it gives credit to the message of Jesus. These things about suffering that he's saying to them, right? They don't come in a vacuum. He's not sitting up in some ivory tower where everything's good and and right for him. But now, right, because he's because he's in prison, he can say these things about suffering with street credit. He suffered. And so when he says that suffering brings about and and pain brings about and, and in the midst of suffering, these realities are true. We can believe him. So he says, I, Paul, a prisoner, I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. You got to ask questions of the text if you're going to study the Bible well. So the first question you can ask whenever you see the word therefore is what is therefore therefore? That's that's a great question to ask of any therefore. Why therefore what based on? What just came before it? Therefore, since we are called to be rooted and grounded in love, we saw that last week. Therefore, because you're rooted and grounded in love, walk worthy of your of the calling. Next question you might ask is what calling? Like, what's the calling? That seems like kind of like church speak, right? Like you just the word calling. We can throw that around. But what what is the calling? We go to to first Peter for some help with that. First Peter chapter two, verse 21, for to this you have been called, Peter says, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Now, Peter's making a point about suffering here that can't be missed. But he also alludes to what our calling is. Even through suffering, we are to follow in the steps of Jesus. That's our calling. Our calling is to follow in the steps of Jesus, even in suffering. This is a great commission. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, Jesus says to his disciples. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and lo, I'm with you always, to the end of the age. Following in the steps of Jesus. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and lowly in heart. 
We learn from Jesus. We walk with him arm in arm, right? When we follow in the steps of Jesus, he's not a slave driver over top of us demanding what we do. He, no, he gets down and he walks with us. He yokes up next to us and we walk in the steps of Jesus. That's our calling. So he says, walk worthy of the calling. So your next question of the text should be, what does it look like to walk worthy of the, of the calling? This calling to follow Jesus in his steps. Well, we'll skip to verse 3. Then we'll come back to verse two. Verse three says, be eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. What it looks like to walk in the steps of Jesus is to be unified with your brothers and sisters in Christ. That's what that verse says. That's supposed to be not just our desire, but our eager desire. Unity is to be our eager desire. And not only that, but from verse 3, we learn that where the Holy Spirit is, there's unity. Which will make the opposite true as well, by the way. Where gossip reigns, the Holy Spirit ain't there. Where divisiveness reigns, the Holy Spirit ain't there. Where divisions and power grabs and backbiting and selfishness reign, the Holy Spirit ain't there. He's where there's unity. That's where the Holy Spirit is. And as we'll see later in this verses 4, 5, and 6, He's there where unity is because He's the only one that can produce it in us. The Holy Spirit is the adhesiveness, the bond of peace that exists in the people of God. So be eager for the Holy Spirit's peace and unity. And what will that look like practically? That's what verse 2 is all about. Verse 2 says, with, right, what does it look like to, to be eager for the unity of the Holy Spirit? It requires this, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. There's a lot there to unpack. There's humility and gentleness. What's great about these two words is when you get down beneath them, humility is what you think it is, but it's, it's uh, applying directly to the spirit, like the in, internal humility, that you have a spirit of humility. But when you look at the word that's translated gentleness, what it really means is humble courtesy. So it's not just a spirit of humility, it's actions of humility. That's those two things together. Be humble in your heart and be humble with your hands and your feet and your mouth and your eyes and your ears. Be humble. Humble people. This isn't weakness, by the way. Humility is not weakness. Humility requires a boatload of confidence. Confidence in the right things. Confidence that Jesus is who He says He is. Confidence that who God says you are in Jesus is true. Humility is not cocky, right? Cocky people, you really get to know them. Or if they get to know a psychiatrist, what they find out is they're actually not very confident. They're actually very scared people. But confident people can be humble because they know where it comes from, where what they have to give back to the world, what they have to offer within the body of Christ is a gift from God. So they can act with confidence. Humility and gentleness are. They require confidence. They require strength. They require toughness to live that way. 
He calls us to humility. And you can't have unity without humility and gentleness. You can't. They can't exist if everybody is grabbing for their thing. If, if everybody's insecure about their place, unity can't exist. You'll get a lot of backstabbing. You'll get a lot of slander. You'll get a lot of gossip. But you won't get unity. Next thing he turns to is patience. Patience is required for unity. The picture I think of with this is, is my bride or any other mom of kids, right? I mean, it's like 7.30 p.m. And the kids are still hungry even though we fed them. And they just now remembered that they have homework that they didn't remember they had the last seven times we asked them. And it's bedtime in 30 minutes, right? And it's just absolute sheer chaos. And my mind and my heart, right? I start to get angry, super angry. I start to get scolding and I have to go to the bedroom, right? While my wife sits there and answers stupid question after stupid question with grace and humility and direction. While getting a snack with this hand, right? You know, comforting the kid that just stubbed his toe over here. Now, she's not perfect, obviously. She, she would say that if she was up here because she hates this attention that she's getting right now. That's patience. It's with those who are going through chaos without succumbing to the chaos. That's patience. Think about your mom, by the way. Not all of us have had good moms, so I don't say that flippantly. I know for some of you, that's hurtful. But for those of us who have a good mother, or maybe by God's grace, even though you may not have had a good mother, you had the chance to know a good mother. Think about the patience of your mom. Namely, she had to put up with you. My mom had to put up with me. She still does. It's patience over the long haul. This is the level of patience we extend to one another. Not just the patience of a mother, but the patience of Christ. Infinitely greater than the patience of the best mom. Patience. Patience is required for unity. Because we must bear with one another. If you're going to bear with one another, right? The picture here is a non-judgmental carrying of weight along some, with somebody else. Imagine, right, if you will, the church member who comes in carrying a giant sack filled with who knows what, and they're burdened down under the weight of it. What they don't need is for you to say, what's all that stupid stuff in your bag? What the, why, what, did you not see the wheelbarrows were on sale at Lowe's? Right? Like, why don't you get one of those lawnmowers with the little utility cart? Now, that all might be what they need. But the true Christian who bears with one another says, here, let me help you carry that. And you might be three miles down the road by the time you're talking to them about the fact that they can get a wheelbarrow to put some of that stuff in or that some of that stuff that they're carrying, they don't have to. That's what it means to bear with one another. Christians rebuke one another. That happens. They exhort one another. That happens. They correct 
one another. Those things happen, but those things happen while we're shouldering weight next to each other. Not from a distance, right? If you're going to tell someone how they can change their life, that's a good thing. But say it to them while you're carrying it alongside them. Some of the most valuable lessons I've learned, the most transformative lessons I've learned, I've learned from people who carried the weight beside me. They said hard things to me. Things that if they would have said from a distance, I would have never heeded them talking to me that way. I would have pegged them as jerks and disregarded them immediately, but next to me, carrying the weight beside me, I heard what they had to say. Might we be those types of people? And to be those types of people, right? That's where unity exists, is where people, right, will bear with one another with humility and gentleness and with patience for one another, non-judgmentally carrying the load alongside one another. We've been forgiven much. We love much. The magnitude of forgiveness that I have received, right? Or to think about it the opposite way, the judgment that I deserve that I have not received should lead me to a place where I'm not quick to throw out judgment. Again, don't hear me saying we don't confront people, that we don't engage with people with the truth. That has to happen. But we get with others and we bear along. And all of this is done in love. That's actually really good news, by the way. Because as last week we saw, that love doesn't come from a fountain within us. That love comes from an immeasurable, unimaginable, inexhaustible fountain of God Himself. Through His grace, we have that love poured out onto us. That's the fountain of that love. And so in Colossians Paul, again, to the church at Colossae can say this in, in chapter 3, verse, verse 14. And above all these, put on love. And what is it about love? It binds everything together in perfect harmony. Without love, there's no unity. Without love, there's no being bound together. And so in love, in humility, in gentleness, in patience, we bear with one another. That is what we're called to. That's what it looks like to walk worthy of the calling. You good at it? I'm not. I'm not great at it. I have seasons of maybe doing okay at it. But I'm not like some benchmark of, of unity. That's okay, right? But I would ask us, right? Like, like do you believe God? About this, Psalm 133, we, we were here last summer, one Sunday, where David, inspired by God, says, and it's only three verses long, he says, Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. God says that to us. It is like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes, and like the dew of Hermon which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. We, we talked about this. We're going to flesh all these verses out today. But the takeaways we had last summer were unity is rare. A rare and beautiful thing. It flows down from God upon us and it keeps spilling over like 
oil in a beard to others, right? And it's fragrant, it's, it's beautiful, it smells good, it's, it, it's uh, the type of taste and see that the Lord is good type of thing, and it's a blessing, obviously, that comes from God, and it is good and pleasant. Do you believe God when he says that? Do you really believe him? Do you yearn for that? When he says this is good for you and pleasant for you, do you yearn for that? Do you yearn for unity more than you yearn for gossip? Do you yearn for unity more than you yearn for winning? More than you yearn for control? Or reputation? Or pride? Or preferences? Or being right? Do you yearn for unity more than those things? That's what we're called to. And that's a, tar- that's a hard calling. But the good news as we close is, is we're not the foundation of that calling. We're not the fountain of that calling. God is. And that's what the next four or three verses point us to. Verse four or verse six shows us where we're going. So read it first. That one, we have one God and father of all who is over all and through all and in all. That's the foundation of our unity. It's the foundation of our oneness. That's where we're headed, but Paul builds his argument to get us there in verses 4 and 5. Verses 4 and 5, he loves the word one here. It's the point he's trying to make. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, all the ones building to one God. God has baked unity into the entire design that he has for the church. God has baked unity into the entire essence of who he is. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit together in unity. And so he says, hey, there's there's one body. The analogy is obvious, right? It whispers a sneak peek for next week, too, because we're going to talk about ministry in the church. And now there's different roles that different people play within the church, but that everyone is distinctly valuable in that role, just like a body, right? Like our dog has a broken leg now and everything else has to compensate for that leg, right? And so that leg is very, very important, right? Every part of the body matters. That's the one body analogy. There's one spirit. This is the Holy Spirit. Hear me today because this matters. Like if you grew up Baptist or Methodist or Presbyterian or whatever, insert whatever, right? That denomination or that maybe sector of Christianity doesn't have some like different Holy Spirit that's better than the other Holy Spirit that everybody else has. The true believers, the true Christians, the ones who are truly following the true Jesus have the same exact Holy Spirit. So like you might have grown up in some backwoods free will Baptist church with a hacking preacher, you know, has to wipe himself with a hanky every. 15 seconds. You feel like you might have an aneurysm at any moment, right? And maybe you have a friend who who grew up Catholic. But if true faith and the true Jesus exist in both of you, it's the same Holy Spirit. One. Holy. One. That was two, see? One. Holy Spirit. One hope. That hope is the consummation of all things that one day every tribe and tongue and nation will worship Jesus in his presence. That's our hope. One day we won't even have to strive for unity anymore. Jesus will have pulled it off. It'll just be second nature for us to be 
unified. And that is our hope, one hope. I watched a video this week, man, it just wrecked me. I'm a baby, you guys know that. But it was Russians and Ukrainians just months before this war worshiping together at this same kind of leadership gathering. That's going to happen again. It's going to happen again. This war can't change that, that we're seeing play out on social media and our TVs. The, the hope of unity that we have in Christ can't be stopped. One Lord, this is Jesus. There's Trinity happening here. We've, 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 there's one God. We know that's where we're headed. There's one Spirit, the Holy Spirit, and there's one Lord, Jesus. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody gets to the Father except through me. There's exclusivity, exclusivity in that statement. He's the only way to heaven. Jesus, God's perfect Son, baby boy, incarnate, God with skin on, lives for 33-odd years, a perfect life. No sin in Him at all. Perfect representation of not just the law of God, but all the promises of God. Walks this earth. Breathes our air. God with skin on. But the end of his life is brutal. Well, the end of his earthly life is brutal. Wait, what everyone thought was the end of his earthly life was brutal. Death on a cross. Nails through his hands, through his feet. Crown of thorns on his head. Whip on his back. But that blood, the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanses us from all our sin. There was a purpose in His suffering. There was a purpose in His death. One Lord, He did what no one else could do. He made it possible for our sins to be forgiven by faith. One faith. One Lord, one one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith. And that's faith in Jesus. His finished work on the cross. By grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. If you're not a Christian, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ today. You'll be saved. There is one name under heaven given among men whereby you might be saved. Jesus. Faith in Jesus saves. And then there's one baptism. Now, there's discussion here because he doesn't specify if he means there's two concepts of baptism. And I mean this very, very generally. There's the, uh, they're both true. There's water baptism and there's baptism of the Spirit, right? Like when we are become Christians, the Holy Spirit comes to dwell in us. Sometimes the, the New Testament authors refer to baptism as the baptism of the Spirit. And there's also this idea of water baptism. Two things. Some believe they happen simultaneously. Some Christians believe they happen, you know, varying orders, okay? This isn't a statement about mode. This is, it can't be. It absolutely can't be. It's a statement about the reality that, right, when we are saved by Jesus, there is a baptism that happens in us, a baptism of the Holy Spirit. And if you look at church history, with that follows kind of like a, that toy hammer the doctor has when he hits your knee, right? Like it's almost like salvation, Water baptism. That's how it works. Like salvation, water baptism. They're like so closely tied together. Right? And that baptism of the Spirit and of water and by water are these signs of unity that we carry with us. The true children of God have been baptized by the Holy Spirit. 
And those who are faithful and true in their faith will have been baptized in water as well. And all of this, every bit of it, points to one God. Verse 6 again. One Father, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Now be careful. Some people take this verse to mean that like the trees are God and the plants are God and the dirt is God, right? Like everything is God and I, God, God is in me and God is, that's not the point. This is an in-house conversation, by the way. It'd be like if I said, all of us are going to, I'm not saying this, all of us are going to the steakhouse after this and I'm buying food for all of you. And then all of Huntington shows up and says, you said all. Well, contextually, right, I meant all of you, okay? Paul is talking to the church. When he says all of you, he's talking to those who are believers in Jesus. And he says, for you, there is one God, and he's in all of you, children of God. And he is working through everything in your lives. All of it is for God's glory. The message says it like this. I love these last four verses, or these these three verses in the message. Ephesians 4, 4 through 6. You were all called to travel on the same road and in the same direction. So stay together, both outwardly and inwardly. You have one master, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who rules over all, works through all, and is present in all. Everything you are and think and do is permeated by oneness. It's baked in to Christianity. God made sure of it. All of the oneness of God, all of the oneness of his people, all of the oneness of his plan, and that is the basis and the foundation of our unity. We are reflections of the oneness of God uh, within himself and the oneness of God with his people. We reflect. The good news about it being God who's the foundation and the fountain of it is that it's a plan that can't fail. Even when unity is difficult, it doesn't have to fail. If you're not a Christian, you can get in on this today. You can have your life made new. 2 Corinthians 5.17 If anyone is in Christ, therefore if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. What that means is your life can be completely transformed from someone who doesn't yearn for the unity that comes from God to someone who does. From someone who actually isn't even unified to God, but can be through the finished work of Jesus on the cross. To be in Christ is to respond in faith to the finished work of Jesus on the cross. If you have questions about what that means, I'd love to talk to you after this. Um, Talk through what that means. And Christian, three things as we close. One, know and love God's good design. You can't make yourself love unity, right? That's why the third thing, I'm going to spoil it already, is that we pray for this. We pray that God makes us love his design. We pray that God helps us know his design. One God, one Savior, one Holy Spirit. Let me drill down on that one for a second. If all of us were to walk in step with the same Holy Spirit... Unity would be a natural outcome of that. Right? Because if the Holy Spirit was in charge of our lives all at the same time, 
and he would be leading us in ways that were unified. So might we be filled with the Holy Spirit, filled like a sail, right? Like a sail on a ship is filled with the wind and it pushes it in a, in a different direction or a, or, a, or a certain way. Might we be filled by the Holy Spirit? Pray for that. The evidence of this will be unity and then to be eager for unity. Might we desire it, love it, want it, yearn for it. Southern Africa, they have this idea of uh, Ubuntu. That's the word they use to describe philosophy. Philosophy is summed up like this. I am because we are. It's not a Christian philosophy necessarily. But it applies to this, that we would be people who see that in this place we are, right, individually, I am because we are. Because God is saving for himself a people from every tribe and tongue and nation. I exist as a Christian amongst this community of people. I am because we are. And not only that, but even further for us, I am because Jesus is. So we have that unity. Last verse I'll read, Romans 12. 9 and 10. This is my vision for us. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. This is it. Outdo one another in showing honor. I love that. That every competitive bone in your body, right? You want to channel that towards something? You want to like uh, try to be better than your wife this week, God's giving you freedom to go after something right there. You can race her. Try to win. By Tuesday, be so far in front of her at, show, at showing honor that there's no chance she's going to catch up. Lay your preferences down. Sacrifice your, yourself a little. Treat her with kindness and dignity and honor and respect and by the way, to, especially if you're the only one attending today and your spouse isn't with you, you got an advantage already, right? Like you can, you can do, she doesn't know that this is what's going to happen. By Wednesday, she could be like, what? No chance. She can't catch up with you now. I know some of you, they can. <laughs> Who's the next person you need to, like, where are you going to start today? It, it, it might not be a spouse. It might be a, your children. It might be a neighbor. It might be a, a relationship at work. It might be a relationship here at Mercy Village Church. The spouse example was the easiest one for me because I stink at it. We all got people we need to to chase after this with. Who are you going to outdo in showing honor this week? Let that be the the homework assignment of of yearning for unity. And lastly, pray for these things, man. (laughs) Because it ain't going to happen unless God helps it happen. In fact, the next three chapters of Ephesians are going to be just this really long prayer guide for the children of God. Because week after week, we'll be like, oh, I can't do that. Oh, can't do that. Oh, I tried that one, but it didn't work so well. We got strength, God's power, the grace of Jesus, the influence of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Might we be people who pray for unity. One of the utmost priorities of the people of God must be unity, and true unity only comes from God. And it always brings him glory because it's a reflection of the unity that he has baked into the gospel. So might we be people marked by unity. Father, thank you so much that we can gather and
sit under the teaching of your word. I've been so convicted this week, like very practically and specifically about some some things. Quite vulnerably, I don't want to do. I don't want any part in them, but you're calling me to them. Through these verses. Might we all be made a little bit uncomfortable by them? So that we have to rely on your grace and your kindness and your power and your promised strength to help us live this way with unity. I pray a whole mess of us would be just yearning for unity this week and it would just spill out through our hands and feet and words and actions. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. You can subscribe to this feed wherever you listen to podcasts. We exist to experience and embody redemption and renewal in Christ alone. And we'd love for you to experience what God is doing as Jesus builds Mercy Village Church. Connect with us online at www.mercyvillage.church.